Hey, I'm Brian Farrell, and welcome to a special bonus episode of City of Refuge. When I set out to produce this podcast series about a little-known French community that saved 5,000 refugees during World War II, I did it with the aim of showing how ordinary people can effectively resist the evil we see in our world. But lest you think this sort of thing only happened in isolated cases throughout history, I want to highlight the kind of rescue work that's happening today on the front lines of the European migrant crisis. Nobody knows exactly how many people die crossing the Mediterranean each year to flee violence, poverty, and climate change. All we have are estimates. In 2019, the UN's International Organization for Migration put the figure at 1,885, which is the lowest number since the start of the crisis in 2014. But that doesn't mean crossing the Mediterranean is any less deadly. If anything, it means fewer people are attempting the perilous journey. Because while the annual death toll has declined, the mortality rate has increased. These trends are the direct result of Europe having largely withdrawn from its legally required search and rescue duties. In an effort to stem the flow of refugees and migrants, the European Union transferred that responsibility to Libya in exchange for money and resources. As a result, the Mediterranean has become a sort of border wall policed by a rogue and non-professional coast guard whose country is enmeshed in human trafficking and civil war. Given this reality in which governments have shirked their responsibility to provide safe passage, let alone address the root causes of migration, the task of helping those in need falls on civil society. One group providing such help is Sea-Watch International a German NGO that was founded in 2014 to monitor the situation in the Mediterranean and raise awareness. As the need for rescue became more apparent, Sea-Watch morphed into a full-on search and rescue operation with a network of over 500 volunteers, including trained professionals who operate a light aircraft and a 50-meter ship. Astoundingly, they have rescued over 37,000 people at sea in just five years. Last summer, Sea-Watch made international headlines when one of its captains was temporarily arrested after defying orders not to dock in Lampedusa, an Italian island south of Sicily. The captain, a German woman named Carola Racchetta, was carrying 40 migrants rescued at sea, and her decision to defy orders came after a 17-day standoff with the Italian government, during which Sea-Watch was forced to stick to international waters. Ultimately, with lives at stake, she brought the ship into port where she was taken into custody and the ship was confiscated. Although quickly freed, Riquetta still faces the possibility of criminal charges. Meanwhile, Sea-Watch didn't get its ship back until December, a full six months later. That means search and rescue operations in the central Mediterranean have only just resumed. To learn more about this sadly vital humanitarian work, I reached out to Sea-Watch spokesperson Heidi Sadek. Born to Egyptian parents in the Netherlands, Heidi has been with the organization since 2017 and was on board for last summer's standoff with the Italian government. During our conversation, she explained what a search and rescue operation looks like, the risks involved in such work, and the general outlook for Sea Watch going forward. But first, she told me about the people they often find at sea and the kind of journey that precedes a rescue. The majority of people displaced in the world today, a record number of almost 70 million, 
are displaced within their own region. So imagine someone fleeing Cameroon. There is a civil war going on there. There, You flee first in your immediate vicinity, so people end up in Nigeria. Then in Nigeria, in the north, there are certain security risks as well. There is Boko Haram, and then they are forced to move into Niger, right? So it's not, it's not like people pan out their exact journey and say, oh, tomorrow at five, I'm going to be in that city, and then the day after at two, I'm going to be in this country. It's a desperate attempt to flee the immediate danger that people face. So then you end up in Niger and there is a organized system of trafficking people that you cannot control. You cannot move outside of this sort of conveyor belt of people being smuggled into Libya. So people often lose control over their journeys and desperately have to find their way out or to the next destination. Um, so what we hear is that people then get tortured, they get exploited, they have to call their families back home. And I've heard this from young children traveling alone, teenagers who've made this journey on their own, who've walked through the desert on foot and were then taken and tortured and beaten and told to call their family to send more money. So by the time they arrive in Libya, they have gone through such incredible abuse that you know the only way out of Libya is north. The only way out of Libya is the sea. I've met, for example, some Egyptians who were just working in Libya for better opportunities to save money, who wanted to go back to Egypt, but they couldn't. You can't just walk out in the street and, and decide, oh, I'm going to leave today. You know, I'm going to take a bus to, to Cairo. That's not possible. You can't just cross the desert and go back. And people found themselves having to make that journey or being forced onto a rubber boat. If you want to leave this country, this is how you do it. You pay me money, I'll put you on a boat and maybe you'll be found alive, and maybe not. So the stories are, without exception, full of abuse, torture, exploitation, trafficking, imprisonment, sexual violence. This is the, the order of the day with, for people coming out of Libya. When they do make it to Europe, are there cases of people then being deported? Is that a common occurrence? I do think that people will face that threat. I don't know of the exact proportions. But what I do know is that uh, the asylum process is or can be very, very long. I normally don't stay in touch, but there are a handful that I am still in touch with who are still uh, waiting for their asylum process. And we can see this when you look at the camps in Greece, for example, Moria. There are people who have been stuck there living in horrid conditions. People still die every winter from the cold. There was a fire recently where people died. There is uh, some serious neglect going on there. And these people are supposed to be there just in transit, but they're still there years and years after they fled their original circumstances. So the, the process is very prolonged. It's not dignified. It's not humane. And even if you're not under immediate threat of deportation, you're, you're not living a full life for sure. I, I hope that there are some people that are able to ultimately get out of the refugee camps and get settled and actually start new lives. Is that something you have at least encountered? Yes. Yeah, I have. I've seen uh, some sort of, well, would you call it a success? Would you call it a happy ending? I would like to call it the bare minimum of what people deserve. But yeah, you, you do sometimes see that. And then there's the obvious further struggles of, people who face racism and who face rejection and uh, or just the struggle of having to readjust your life in a new place 
but yes, those those stories do happen. People do ultimately sometimes find safety and find peace. I hope. <laughs> How does a search and rescue operation unfold? Just to kind of give us a sense of what the work is like and, and what it entails. Sure. So I'll answer that in what it should look like and in what it does look like. So what it should look like is that the competent authorities, which are Coast Guards and Rescue Coordination Centers, do exactly what it says on the tin, to search and to rescue. So that is a job that belongs to governments. And what that entails in practice is to spot boats in distress. What they should do immediately is alert the nearest or responsible, actually, rescue coordination center, which in this case should be the one in Rome, or let's say in Malta, call them up and say, I am so-and-so vessel or aircraft, and I have spotted people who are in uh, immediate distress who require assistance. An aircraft cannot usually cannot render assistance, so what then happens is that the rescue coordination center notifies the nearest vessel and says, can you please go and render assistance, as they should under maritime law. Every captain, when they know of a boat in distress or people in distress, like a, a person overboard or whatever, is required by law to render assistance. And when they don't, they are liable to prosecution. What has happened now in reality is that this has been completely flipped on its head. And there is a culture being created where not rendering assistance is perfectly fine because that's what Europe wants. So what happens is that we had to find our own way to know, even know, where boats in distress are. Sometimes you'll be sailing and you'll see them yourself. So really looking through binoculars and seeing a boat, a rubber boat with 100 people on it, and then you go and render assistance. There is also a civil aircraft. So we have our own Moonbird plane that flies and spots boats in distress and then alerts nearby vessels and coordination centers. And then there is also another uh, mechanism, which is the something called the Alarm Phone, which is also a civil organization that has a phone number. Again, what it says, it's alarm. So people who are uh, in distress at sea will call that phone number, often to no avail because they don't know where they are. But if they do know roughly where they are, then a search will be initiated and people will be looking for that boat in distress. That's all before contact is made, before a rescue even happens. You know, the Mediterranean is huge. And when there is a boat in distress, it is very, very hard to find. If that does happen under the right circumstances, then a rescue will be initiated by whoever it is, whether it's, you know, us, uh, uh, an NGO, or a commercial vessel. You deploy whatever resources you have. So we have fast rescue boats that go out, hand out life jackets, take people safely, embark them onto our mothership, and then provide them with basic care. So we have medical assistance, we have you know, basic provisions, food and, and water, new clothes and showers, blankets, whatever it is that they may need. And then a rescue is not over until people are on land. So the next step is to then alert the relevant authorities and say, we have rescued X number of people, um, please provide us with a port of safety. And this is where Europe is now completely washing its hands of responsibility and saying, oh yeah, uh, ask the Libyan Coordination Center, the, the so-called Libyan Coast Guard, to coordinate your rescue for you, which is hugely dangerous. If you look at videos online of how this so-called Coast Guard conducts itself, it is criminal and it is violent and people die. We have evidence of people dying because of 
their behavior at sea. So obviously, when we're asked to take people back to Libya as a so-called, I mean, in quotation marks, safe port, we would never do that. So then it becomes this political battle to get people to Europe instead of to Libya. How dangerous is this work for your volunteers and, and your staffers as well? Are, are the risks mainly legal or are there uh, other risks involved in, in doing this work? You're at sea. I imagine there are lots of, of dangerous things that could happen. Yes, I mean, going working on a ship always is dangerous. And there, that is why you need to be well trained and prepared for doing this work. But I would say that, yeah, largely when I go on the ship, what I worry, well, not really, the risk involved for me would be the legal one. But it's never happened so far that someone was actually convicted uh, because we know that what we do is legal. It's obviously a hugely disruptive and terrible thing that your life is put on hold because you're facing a legal battle and that has its own challenges. And I, I really don't want to belittle that. But principally, it won't stick. Interesting to hear all that. Um, I think some part of me was considering this work as maybe a form of civil disobedience, but you've kind of set me straight here by explaining how the core of what you're doing is legal, and that's kind of um, one of the points. (laughs) Mm, It's interesting because around the time that uh, Captain Carolla was uh, arrested, there was a lot of this terminology being used, you know, civil disobedience. And I'm not I know there's a time and place for civil disobedience and it's a very effective uh, and perfectly legitimate tool, but I refuse to use that term for what we do because it's not. We upheld the law in every single way and it wasn't disobedience. Uh, And I think it's important to get that nuance right in this. Even for ourselves, what we did was perfectly legal and it will go down in history as the right thing to have done. And yes, maybe in future there will be time for civil disobedience, but but this wasn't it. Yeah, and I think it's completely in line with what I've learned about the way rescuers viewed things. They didn't spend time thinking about legalities. To them, you know, helping people isn't illegal. I mean, it's what humans do. I mean, this is something I've been giving a lot of thought recently, which is the the spectrum kind of between a human interaction of providing assistance and then on the other end the radical political action and the resistance against, you know, the the fascism and racism of our day. Both really apply here. But sometimes it is just as simple as that. You know, somebody is likely to drown. We have a ship that is well-equipped and people who are trained who can make sure they don't drown. At a very basic human level, that is what our volunteers at sea are doing, to just make sure people are not dying. You know, basic But then on the other hand, we are very deeply linked to activist movements in all over Europe. And we are very vocally resisting the the populism that is all around us and the anti-immigrant policies that are being enforced at Europe's external borders and on on the mainland as well. So it it is a little bit of both. It's the resistance and the, the political stance that we're taking, but also the deeply human encounter at sea. Um, sea Watch and I'm sure other rescue organizations have to deal with myths and, and outright lies about what your work is or what it's contributing toward. I guess some have labeled you as human traffickers or aiding that horrible practice. How do you deal with that? 
I think we kind of deal with it and move on because it's so clear. How can there be a relationship between us and smugglers when we often don't find boats in distress? If there was such a, a relationship or a contact, then surely we would be right there waiting. You know, we would know of a position of where a boat in distress is and just make a handover from a smuggler to us. If that was our intention, we would literally be a ferry. But what happens is we're looking for a needle in a haystack. We're looking for people who others do not want us to find. So on a deeper level, there's also the argument of should the presence of humanitarian assistance be a secret? I mean, any in any other place in the world where people are crossing borders, the presence of a refugee camp where humanitarian assistance is provided is known. And it's okay for that to be known. And it's okay for that space to be protected, that humanitarian space that is supposed to be independent of the political context and the, the warring parties and whatever is happening. So why is that any different at sea? Why should our presence be a surprise? We are there to provide life-saving aid. We are working on the basis of the humanitarian imperative, and we have every right to be there. And we should be there because others are not. So what is the problem with us sailing and people hoping to be rescued? It's not a guarantee. So people who died last week in a shipwreck were maybe hoping to be found by a rescue vessel or by a Navy vessel or by a commercial vessel, but they weren't because nobody wants to rescue them. And even if they do, they sometimes can't find them. So, I mean, the argument is, is it's so persistent um, because I think it's convenient and it fits with those who take a hard line on migration. And it's just easy to have a scapegoat and say, ah, oh, well, well, you're just traffickers. It's a weak argument and our presence does not you know, influence the number of attempts of people crossing. The myth has been busted many, many years ago, but it still persists because it's just the easy argument to have a an enemy to blame uh, rather than take responsibility and face the fact that, you know, Europe's migration policy is deadly and it's criminal and it's failing. Of course, we're going to be attacked and blamed uh, and accused of all sorts of nonsense. What we do is we're making history. We're putting on the public record what is happening in the Mediterranean and it's only natural that those who are in power with a vested interest to keep things the way they are to fight us on this. So do you expect the situation to get worse, stay the same? What is your outlook, at least your short-term outlook for this year? And if you even do project beyond that, what role, what work do you foresee Sea Watch doing? Um, well, in the kind of short or immediate term of this year, I see us doing exactly what we have been, and then hopefully with two rescue ships rather than one. And I think right now the climate is is kind of, it's not as bad as it was last year with, with the weeks of political standoff. But at the same time, something's got to give. You know, these ad hoc solutions for distributing people are not successful, they're not working, and we need a robust new mechanism for distributing people fairly in Europe. We need a fairer and more humane asylum policy across the continent. I don't see that changing in the next year. And I've kind of taken a very cynical approach uh, over the last couple of years on this. It's, it's very clear that it's actually the situation is getting worse. A few years ago, we were still working with the Italian Coast Guard under their coordination. And now that's completely gone away. And we are forced to interact 
with an illegitimate and incompetent entity um, that actually causes people to die. And that is still the reality. And as long as the big institutions like the UN recognize that authority and legitimize it, then then what's you know what's actually going to improve? This needs to change. the 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 way we talk about this needs to be completely flipped on its head. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, it's so important that you provide this example that ordinary people can be involved in in this and can affect change because that's probably what it's going to take. It's it's not going to happen in the halls of political power certainly on its own, not without the involvement and pressure from the general public. Thank you so much for saying that. I know that was very cynical, but to end on a positive note, actually, is that maybe at sea, I don't see the situation changing, but all over Europe, what has been hugely motivating and what actually keeps our work alive and possible is the generosity and solidarity of the general public, of regular citizens who are resisting this populism and this racism and fascism. And what we see now is this huge movement of people, you know, opening their homes or their churches or places of worship or whatever it is for people who have newly arrived and who are who are basically defying this policy and this structure coming from the top down. So even mayors, local mayors of cities who say to their minister of interior, actually you may say that the ports are closed, but I will welcome the people who are now crossing the Mediterranean. And there's a, a movement called Seebrücke, which is German for sea bridge. And what they've done is tens, hundreds of cities across Europe have declared themselves uh, safe havens or solidarity cities that will facilitate practically, like sending a bus or sending, uh, you know, whatever, transport to bring people to their cities. Uh, and even they're challenging this legally, constitutionally, where their decision as a mayor can override the decision of central government or the Ministry of Interior so that practically they can start welcoming people who are newly arriving to Europe. And that is hugely uh, inspiring and motivating. And it shows that civil society can carry this where governments are failing. That's it for this bonus episode of City of Refuge. I hope to have more for you soon. In the meantime, thanks to my guest, Heidi Sadek. You can learn more about her organization by visiting c-watch.org. That's s-e-a-watch.org. As always, our theme music and other original songs are by Will Travers. And you can get a transcript of this episode, as well as information on the entire series, at wagingnonviolence.org.